My last climb, kind of over the middle of the valley to about 8,000 feet, which gave me just enough to get into the last circle far enough to get back to Chilhowee, above minimum height and over minimum time. But most of that glide, I was doing 65 or 70 knots. I was not fast at all. You know, it was, I was very close to the end of the glide before I was able to speed up. One of my greatest memories was when I was flying a competition and we had to go into Germany. And that's where I made my outlanding, unfortunately. But I made a crucial mistake because my final was overhead a German village. This is Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Coming to you from the mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and bringing you great soaring content from glider pilots all over the globe. We now join Chuck and our new guest pilot. Thank you, Dave, for that great intro and thank you for joining us for episode 96. Thank you all for your continued support of the podcast and helping us grow the soaring community. Also to our Patreon pilots who financially help support the podcast here. And to all of our great sponsors, I'm so grateful for our podcast team. I don't always thank them, but thank you, Michelle, Mitch, Zach, and Kim for the great music and all of our content contributors. We have just hit 100,000 downloads. Wow. Of course, you know another reason for our success is our featured guest pilot. And this episode, of course, is no exception as we bring you Tony Condon. He has recently won the Club Class Nationals in Tennessee. Tony's going to take us with him in the cockpit as we experience what it's like to compete and what it takes to soar all the way to the podium today. Tony has competed in many gliding competitions, and when Tony's not competing, he is teaching others how to soar. Later on, we're going to head to Brazil to hear from Sergio as he explains dolphin flight in our new Soaring Master segment titled Soaring with Sergio, the Soaring Master. Flying Simon is going to join us from the Netherlands later on with some soaring advice about landing out on his new segment. This one's called Simon Says. All this and more right now on Soaring the Sky. I want to take a minute and thank and tell you about our newest sponsor, Wings and Wheels. They've been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for more than 30 years now. They have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplanes and soaring supplies in the U.S. Nearly everything you find on their site is in stock and ready for same-day shipping. They're proud to be an exclusive American representative for HPH LTD, manufacturer of the finest quality sailplanes. The HPH Twin Shark is the newest 20-meter two-place sailplane on the market. Their staff has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes, staffed by Adam, Kelly, Julie, and Sean. You can bet a friendly voice will answer when you call. They're located in Eagle, Idaho in their new commercial building with warehouse built to their specifications. And that was completed this year. Whether shipping domestic or international, your soaring-related supply list is covered. They would love for you to come and visit the next time you're in the Boise area. You can check them out on wingsandwheels.com. We're super excited to have them on the pod. Tony Condon, welcome back to Soaring the Sky. Happy to have you again. How are you? I'm great. Glad to be back. So before we dive into the club class nationals and racing, for our listeners that maybe didn't hear your previous episode here on Soaring the Sky, can you please spend a few minutes and give everybody your aviation bio and a background? Yeah, sure. Um, I started flying airplanes in high school in 2002, and I got into gliders in college in Ames, Iowa, um, and got my glider add-on in the spring of 05. And 
flight instructor glider shortly after that. Started flying cross country a few a year or two after that, and, and uh, I didn't get into competition until 2011. But I've done several regional contests, um, mostly in middle of the United States, Region 10 and Region 7, um, and flown a handful of nationals now. But I I was able I did uh, twice I was on the U.S. team in the 13 and a half meter class in 2015 and 2017, um, and then yeah I think I flew the nationals in 2014 and 16 and 19 if I remember right so wow nice signed a lot of students off for glider check rides and given a lot of rides and had a lot of fun uh, soaring for state records and one national record and. Um, shared the Behringer Trophy with Mitch Hudson one year, so that was great. And uh, uh, designated pilot examiner as well in airplanes and gliders. So that's kind of the nutshell, I think. So. Very nice. So speaking of racing, I wanted to chat a little bit about your recent adventures in the Club Class Nationals there in Tennessee. But before we get into the particulars of that event, for the benefit of those listeners that really aren't super familiar with glider racing, could you do a quick primer on racing so people can better understand it and maybe talk about your recent win, but stuff sure. like how and where do gliders start, what the course looks like, how many gliders are typically involved, you know, stuff like that. Well, uh, this year was kind of interesting, actually, because we are using the FAI tasking and scoring in the U.S. contest, which is something that a lot of pilots have been asking for for a long time. So as far as uh, starts specifically, at least at Chilhawi, we're using a start line, where in the past in the U.S. for years and years, we've used a start cylinder. Tasks were either area tasks or racing tasks. Either way, regardless of the task, the goal, of course, is to be the fastest pilot around the course. Um, on a racing task, it's point-to-point -point task, like you'd probably think of as far as like a pylon race at Reno, or maybe a, a sailboat competition or something where you have a specific point you need to go around and then come back to the finish. On the area task, you're given large areas around those turn points. And the goal is to basically to achieve the greatest distance staying within those areas in the minimum time that's assigned on the task. So, the, you know, the fastest pilot still gets the most points in because you, if you're the fastest, you get the most distance in the area. Right. You know, task links, of course, depend wildly on the weather. Minimum distance in the FAI contest is 100 kilometers. Competition days ranged probably in the 250 to 300 kilometer range was kind of the typical days now how many gliders are typically involved i guess it depends on the race but yeah depend on in the club class the last couple of years we've been in the low to mid 20s okay and so i think we had 22 in kansas in 2019 and i think it was right around that 24 maybe at chilhawi so depending on where everybody is that can get pretty busy i'm sure yeah especially and actually it seems a little counterintuitive but especially on the weekdays it gets really crowded because everybody, you know, if there's a thermal anywhere, everybody's in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and nobody wants to leave, so it gets really compressed. But we had a few days that were, were like that. Now, as far as technology and what different types pilots are using, and what have you seen? Is it typically? Um, yeah, pretty much everybody has a flight computer of some sort, obviously. that I mean, you have to have a GPS logger, IGC approved for the nationals, so. You know, a lot of people are running like LX9000 sort of computers or clear navs are very popular, clear nav twos. 
Um, I have a Audi that I run that's connected to a, to a, like a speed to fly variometer, electronic variometer. I have a LX navigation variometer right now. Um, I also carry a nano as a backup logger. And then at the national level, you're required to carry flarm. So everybody has flarm of one sort or the other for collision avoidance. Yeah. Super important. All this. So lots of electrons flown in the cockpits. That's for sure. It's not, it's not a vintage glider meet in that respect at all. Obviously there's several strategies people use like hanging behind maybe the start line and letting some of the gliders go first so they can mark those early thermals or sink, or maybe even going through the start zone and returning to the restart later, maybe because of the different conditions. But overall, how important is the start of a glider race to your chances of winning or losing? It's pretty important, I think. In the Sunship game and in winning, George Moffat talks about how you have to win the start, right? I think actually that was one of the keys to my competition was particularly I think on the first day I really I really the first day that counted for points I um, really did a good job at the start as far as letting people out ahead that depends a lot on if it's a blue day or not if there's clouds you can afford to have fewer markers in front of you because you have the clouds but you know it's a time trial race that's the other thing to remember so it's not a we're not racing Grand Prix style here so it's time trial, and with an area task, it's a minimum time task. So, right. you know, first day of the contest, I think we had a three-hour task. We launched at like eleven forty-five or noon because thermals were working then. But you know, it's like, well, you want you want to try to center your rate your day within the best three hours of the afternoon. And it, that day particularly surprised me when I saw people starting to head on on task at like twelve forty-five or one o'clock because I thought, well, I thought it was too early. I started, I you know, I. Before takeoff, I decided I wanted to be on task between one thirty and four thirty, and and that's pretty much what I did. <laughs> yeah, right. And I basically I was able. To, a lot of people were out in front of me by then. I wasn't the last to start, but I was like the, within the last three to start, and I was able to not have trouble on the first leg where some people did and chase a bunch of people down and catch up to them and run with them the rest of the day. So on the other side of the start, of course, is the finish line. So can you spend a few minutes describing what a final glide is and how critical it is not to be too high or too low mm-hmm. for final glide? And just overall, how critical it is in winning and losing? Sure. Well, the finish penalty is very severe, so it can be very critical in winning or losing. Um, uh, at Chilhowee, we're using a finished cylinder and a minimum height, of which basically would put us at pattern altitude. And I, think the circle was like three kilometers radius so so we had to be like say at 800 feet three three kilometers away from the airport the final glide i mean yeah you don't want to be too high because then you could have started sooner and you know potentially you would have been a little bit faster but it's let's see a point for every three feet low i believe or might have that wrong i might have that backwards might be three points per foot either way the finish penalty is pretty severe if you're below the minimum finish height. Um, not to mention that it's, you know, it's self-enforcing if you screw the final glide up enough that you land out instead of finishing. So uh, it's tempting to try to be really aggressive on the final glide, but I tend to try to be a little more conservative if I can. And then, you know, if I have a little extra at the end, I can push it over and go fast and enjoy it. So the last day of the contest actually was a good uh, demonstration of this subject. Actually, there's 
we had pretty good soaring out over the middle of the valley, but the edges of the valley were not good. And we had to go to the east edge of the valley before we came back to Chilhowee. And I got my last climb kind of over the middle of the valley to about 8,000 feet, which gave me just enough to get into the last circle far enough to get back to Chilhowee above minimum height and over minimum time. But most of that glide, I was doing 65 or 70 knots. I was not fast at all. And the sky was dead. There was no clouds. I I found like one little patch of less sink <laughs> along the way. You know, it was, I was very close to the end of the glide before I was able to speed up. And uh, Daniel actually did not have, he took a little different line, I think. And he tried to come over the ridge a little bit on the last leg. And um, he got in some downwash and basically was just lucky to make it back to the airport. Oh, wow. He landed down, you know, he had basically had to do like a straight in landing, took a huge finish penalty and it knocked him off the podium. Oh, wow. I think he ended up fifth overall. Um, so yes, the final glide is very important <laughs> and it's very critical, not only to, you know, I mean, in, in a way, yes, to optimizing your speed, but it, it's a really a great opportunity to mess up your, a really good flight if you try to stay with too close. After all that, and then you can mess it up on the final glide. Yeah. What weather products do you mainly use to prepare on race day? And what are the pluses and minuses of these tools? And how critical is interpretation of weather compared to just raw flight skills? Sure. I've got subscriptions to like all of the soaring forecasting sites. You know, I like them all for certain things. Sometimes it's just interesting to compare and see if there's any differences. I was the weatherman for the contest, so I was, you know, putting together a briefing every morning. And for that, primarily, I was looking at just the National Weather Service temperature and dew point plot for the day. I was using the, um, there's an Android app that does um, the RAP and RUC soundings, which I love. And then I was sort of cross-checking with like SkySide and Top Media to make sure that we were in the same ballpark. I have found that the longer I've soared, the less I really spend time poring over real detailed forecasts and trying to trying to make like strategic decisions off of a forecast, I guess. Even if I wasn't the weatherman, there's not really a lot of time to do that on an everyday flying a contest, in my opinion. I, or at least I don't have the time to do it. By the time you're done at the pilot's meeting, you get ready to grid and have lunch and get ready to launch. I mean, yeah, right. To analyze the weather forecast from a strategic standpoint, I mean, a detailed strategic standpoint, I don't have that ability. Um, now, from a high-level standpoint, you want to know, okay, and particularly you want to know, is the day going to start late or is it going to end early? And that's mostly just to try to do your best to center your flight in the best part of the day. Some days, if you're, you know, obviously Dick Johnson's old saying is start early and pray for rain. Um with today's forecasting abilities, you you know don't have to count on prayer as much to know if the day is going to end early. So, so so there's some days where your best strategy is to start right away and try to just try to make it around before the day ends. So yeah, I mean I I don't have one particular product that I am in love with. I do really like the ruck sounding on my phone though. I've just and probably just because it's so convenient, so handy, and I'm you know I can interpret it pretty easily and. Um, it's what I'm used to using. The name of the app is SKU-T. SKU-T. It's an Android app. Okay, cool. I'll try to put that in China. Yeah. 
Oh, the other thing though, a lot of us are used to just flying like one day a week um, at our club or something. And I do this. I mean, I do that when I'm not competing. And in that case, then I'll watch the forecast for days and days. And, you know, I have a lot of time to come up with a plan to try to maximize the day and stuff like that. At a contest, you're looking at the weather every day. And so you start to notice the trends. You know, I mean, every day I was looking at that day's forecast. I was looking at the outlook. I was seeing how things are moving around the country and affecting our area. You get a different kind of feel for what the soaring is going to be like as little frontal changes happen and, you know, see a little cirrus come over one day and, and that sort of thing. So at least for me, I kind of get to the point where I was able to sort of develop an intuition about what the soaring day was going to be like. So, Tony, let's talk about why we really wanted you to come on the show. But first, I should say congratulations on the win there in the club class in Tennessee. That's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, good stuff. Take us through your racing days as much detail as you can. I, I know there's there's a lot there, but just sure. kind of walk us through it. Yeah, I'm happy to. I want to start off by saying, you know, when I was heading to the contest, I would have been thrilled to end up fifth. Or, you know, making the podium would have been like exceeding expectations, I think. Lots of talented pilots in the class, uh, former national champions in Tom Holleran, Mike Westbrook, Sarah Arnold. You know, Sarah's got a world championship, lots of national record holders. I mean, it's a, a solid group, right? So I had Leah, my wife, there crewing for me. She's been along the whole way and a great uh, help and a great coach for me. And I don't think I could have done it without her, to be honest with you. Not just this contest, but everything we've done the last 10 years or so. Um, first day that we were out there that we flew, practice period was not very good. We had just one sled ride. First day that we flew, I ended up in a field with Mike Westbrook and Jacob Fairbairn. And I felt good about that because Mike's a two-time club class national champion. Right. <laughs> and and then I found out that four pilots had finished the task because they realized that you could get back to the ridge from the turn areas. Oh, wow. And I felt like an idiot. And I, in the end, I felt great relief that um, it didn't end up being an official day because not enough the percentage of pilots who finished was not high enough. So I frankly dodged a bullet on that one. I think, you know, well, all of us who ended up in fields that day sort of dodged a bullet points-wise on that day. In some ways, it was kind of nice to get a warm-up, kind of get the get the mistakes out of your system. Uh, you know, none of us have been racing for two years because of COVID. So yeah, exactly. we were all pretty, I think what happened to us that day was there was some ridge lift and some thermals off the ridge and we all got wound up and excited to bomb out and it didn't occur to any of us that there was not any thermals even though there's clouds everywhere there's not any thermals in the valley and so got that out of the way and so that was was a kind of a relief it was definitely part of the test of the contest i guess yeah, even though there's no points involved for that day so first contest day that we had um, was the day that I think it was an assigned task. We went up kind of a couple turn points to the north and then a couple turn points to the south. It was an area task. Sorry, memory's coming back. And I think the key for me that day, like I said, was to start late and chase everybody down. I had really solid runs, about four knot climbs seemed to be the typical climb there. You know, pleasantly surprised and, and really kind of surprised that I ended up as fast as I was with respect to the other guys. I think I mean, on raw, I fly a standard Cirrus, which is almost the lowest performance glider in the class. The um, LaBelle is the only glider with less performance that's in the club class. And 
lots of people fly, you know, like LS4s and discuses, discus twos, LS8s. And uh, Mike Westbrook was the only one faster than me on raw speed. And so once the handicap was applied, it was you know, pretty convincing lead that I was in after the first day. The next day that we flew, a cold front had come through. And so we had post-frontal air, which of course makes for great soaring weather, great thermal conditions. Um, and the wind was, the, the direction of the wind was good that it was blowing against the ridge. And the task was a racing task that went, um, it had several ridge runs in it. So we, we started on the ridge, I believe we went out to the north first, yeah, and to a couple turn points. And then we came back south along the ridge to a turn point off the southwest part of the ridge, back north along the ridge to um, kind of a triangle out over the valley, finishing with final run along the ridge to the finish line. So it was like three ridge runs and three little thermal tasks. I was pretty confident that I was not going to use the ridge to its potential, mostly because I just didn't know how to, and or I wasn't sure how to. And that's just me not being experienced with flying in the ridges, to be honest with you. And the thing that I got me as a flatland pilot was we were seeing eight and nine knot thermals out in the valley, up to like 7,500 feet. It was amazing. It was real, but uh, the first ridge run, I got down on the ridge and had a good run. And when we were coming back to the ridge for the second run, I caught a 10 knot thermal. And oh, nice. I'm not, nothing in my training has ever told me to say no to a 10 knot thermal. So, <laughs> yeah. um, so I took it, you know, to like 7,000 feet and then watched the guys who had dove down on the ridge just pull away from me. And I was like, oh man, that was, a, you know, it's amazing when you realize that a 10 knot thermal is not the fastest way to go around the course. And so pretty much just burn some speed, burn some altitude to attempt to minimize that mistake and caught another great climb, got out in the valley and then, um, and then still kind of misjudged the final glide back to the ridge for that final run. I did get to get down on the ridge eventually, but that arrived way too high at the ridge and I ended up like fifth for the day. Daniels, uh, Sazen smoked it, but you know, he's a, I mean, he's got a world record in a 126 on the ridge. So sort of his bread and butter. And I still was in the lead barely. I had 15 points on Mike after that. So functionally tied. We had one day of grid squatting, another day that was a blowout, another day that was a rain out, I think. Then we flew on the second to last scheduled day. We did a minimum distance task. We were waiting for sunshine to come, waiting for high series to clear out. It was about three o'clock in the afternoon when we got the launch going kind of a Hail Mary attempt to get a task in and super weak. One knot thermal was my average for the entire flight. And we limped around to the first turn point. It was our assigned task. And I knew we needed five gliders to finish and seemed like every thermal we got to, I'd look around and there'd be one fewer glider in the, th in the gaggle and guys were bailing out to fields and to airports. And um, Sarah Arnold and I ended up at the Monroe County airport, which was the the northernmost turn point is the third turn point and that we were we went the furthest there was another day that was it counted for no points but i felt like it was definitely part of the test i actually got a lot of confidence from that day because i was climbing very well i was keeping up you know at the top of the group i was out climbing people once again i was landing with national world champion caliber pilot and you know i just felt really good 
as good as I could out of after that day. Unfortunately, Leah had to go home early because work was going back to in person, <laughs> and yeah, she had to be there for the first day back. So, oh man, um, so she wasn't around for the last day, but we, it cleared off again. We had another um, sort of post frontal day, I guess, in the last day, and we did uh, an area task. It was a three and a half hour area task uh, down to the south to. I think we went down northern Georgia. Can't remember if it was Dalton or what the turn point was, and then um, kind of a figure eight and up long up to the north end of the valley, southwest of Knoxville, and then to the west edge of the valley. Which the river up there, Tennessee River, is a huge sinkhole, and so you couldn't go very far into that circle because the clouds just ended. It's just water out there, and you don't want to go there. So, like I said, the middle part of the valley is working pretty good. Of course, I was I was nervous as all get out before takeoff, I was kind of a mess because it finally was setting in that, hey, I, I'm i in the lead of this thing. I got a chance to win it as long as I don't screw it up. And I, I was able to keep Mike Westbrook in sight for a lot of the flight, which I felt good about because I figured that he wasn't smoking me on speed if I could see him, you know, and flew with uh, Sarah and, Jason, or Sarah and uh, Jacob at the beginning, flew with Jacob and Mike towards the north end of the task. Then, like I said, I got that last climb in the middle of the valley at 8,000 feet as the sky was kind of dying all around. And then for me, what was it was enough of a squeaker of a final glide to you know, give me a little bit of anxiety, but I was happy to finish. And I think I ended up third for the day on the last day. Um, Sarah and Tom Holleran were faster than I was, but I had beaten Mike by a little bit. And you know, the way the points shook out, I think I ended up with about a 50-point lead at the end. So it's only three days that counted for points, you know, five flying days, three that counted for points, but um, it was quite a feeling, quite satisfying in the end to end up with more points than second place. I can tell you that for sure. Yeah. I, I can't imagine, you know, you're out there flying, you got a world <laughs> champion flying, flying close to you. And, and then you got these other great pilots and wow. And the other thing about the group is that, you know, we're all great friends and, all of them are, you know, wonderful people and obviously great pilots. But um, we had such a wonderful social experience during the event as well because the first few days we're all sitting in the, we're, a lot of us were staying at the airport, you know, and we're sitting in the bunkhouse and we're all just kind of looking around like, wow, this doesn't seem real because it's been so long since we've been in a room with eight or ten other people. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so we had um, a good group of us that, we're staying, um, I was staying in the bunkhouse, uh, the tow pilots were there, and then a bunch of, uh, like, Mike and Jacob and Hugh and Sylvia, Grandstaff, Sylvia was racing, um, and the McMaster brothers and Mitch and Kim and Hudson were all camped out outside of the of the bunkhouse. So we had our little gypsy village there, and it was wonderful. So it was great. I mean, it was, it was just sort of a dream world. We got to, on the days off, we would go explore the Smoky Mountains together, and drink beer and have dinner and have a good time. And, and then we go up and race each other for the national championship on the good days. So nice. Yeah. It's wonderful in respect. It's such an awesome community. You know, I've, I've said that many times on the podcast, but it is truly an awesome community. It's, it's just the, the whole experience. And, and then being at a contest, I, I haven't done that myself, but just being there around all those people and, hanging out and just being able to swap stories and then you get to fly with them. That, that must've been awesome. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, obviously I'm a big fan of competition soaring, but I found comp competition soaring to be a great way to learn how to fly the fly better. What it boils down to. So, you know, direct comparison and like you said, trading notes and advice from other pilots and getting to see them put it into practice in the air too um, makes a it's a great way to kind of get your master's degree in soaring. I think, especially if you can get a good run and go fly, you know, every day for ten or twelve days. Oh yeah, absolutely. There's no no better way. You know, our sponsors mean a lot to us, and one of those important sponsors is Aerox Aviation Oxygen Systems. They are number one in portable and engineered oxygen systems and your source for FAA-approved oxygen mask and portable systems. Aerox recently introduced the Aerox Pro 2 Plus Flight Bag portable oxygen system. This thing is small, lightweight, and it is super simple to use. The Pro 2 Plus is perfect for that occasional user who wants the flexibility to access those higher altitudes without having to worry about flying impaired. It's now available at Aerox Distributors and, of course, at Aerox.com. So remember our friends at Aerox, engineered for aviators. So, Tony, if you had to put your finger on one thing that you think maybe you did better than the other pilots that you beat out this time around, what would it be? Um... I don't know. It's, I mean, I, I think the key to that first day was to win the start and, you know, not take any weak thermals. And then I f really felt like the rest of the other two days were almost just like holding on for dear life, really. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> that's all I've, that's really the only basic summer I've been able to come up with. Um, since then, a lot of, uh, and Moffat goes on and on about it in winning, but, you know, you win by not losing is, a lot of it really is about yeah. not making mistakes and not beating yourself, I guess. And so, and then being ready and, and in a position to take advantage of a you know competitive advantage when it comes along. So, but yeah, I mean, fifty points even on our contest is, I think uh, I think I had like twenty six hundred points to win the contest. So fifty points is hardly anything. Uh, winning margins are often a lot smaller than that. I mean, I think the. Uh, open class nationals and 15 meter just finished and it's something like a tenths of a percent between first and second place. Wow. After six days of flying. I mean, you're, you get, you start to get your pencil out and you start to realize it's, you're talking about a few turns. Yeah. That's, that's nuts. <laughs> yeah. And, and so it really makes you think hard about if you really need to take that last turn in a thermal. Oh yeah. All right. <laughs> so just really boils down to a few key decisions and then not messing up the rest of the time. So. Are there any competitors or race organizers or sponsors you'd like to give a shout out to? Well, I, you know, I mentioned uh, the competitors. We were all kind of living together and having a great time. And you know, uh, Sarah Arnold uh, and her husband, Jason, who run Chill Howie there were the main organizers of the contest. And we've got a you know, great, great airport and great place to fly and great people. So I can't go away without thanking them again and mentioning them. Gary Carter and his wife, Chris, did a lot of the groundwork, organized ground crews and social events and all that stuff. So got to make, you know, got to make sure to thank the people who put the effort in to make the contest happen. It's, there's a lot of, it's amazing how much, uh, if you haven't ever done it, it's amazing how much effort there is to, make a contest happen. So. Oh, I'm sure. Absolutely. Thank you, Tony. That's some good stuff. Mm -hmm. Is it time for our soaring lightning round? It's a fun segment we like to do here on the podcast. I'm not sure if you're 
familiar with it, but okay. I asked you a question, you answer the question, or you can pass on it. What do you think? Okay. I might be embarrassed, but here we go. <laughs> Let's do it. What's the coolest glider you've ever flown in, and where was it? Coolest glider I've ever flown in, and where was it? Um, man, that is a hard... That seems that should be an easy question to answer. I think um, one of the coolest gliders I've flown in is a Slingsby Capstan, which is a side-by-side two-seater. I think it's just kind of unique. But nice. I got to fly one at Harris Hill one time, which was also pretty cool. That's the first thing that comes to mind, I guess. What's the coolest gliding spot you've ever soared at? Coolest gliding spot I've ever soared at? Um, as a whole experience standpoint, when I was in Hungary at uh, uh, Zadimus, uh, where they, they hosted the 13 and a half meter worlds. Nice. Um, it's a grass runway with a clubhouse, a commercial kitchen, a swimming pool, a wine cellar. Wow. <laughs> a, big, a, big, a big hangar and a bunch of like camp cabins, tiny houses in the woods along the trailer uh, tie down row. So you can't ask for more, right? Yeah, I didn't. I never left the property for 14 days. There's no reason to. So. <laughs> right. What is the biggest or heaviest item in your landout kit, or do you have one? Um, in my landout kit, I have a. Let's see. I have a set of tie down stakes, so I guess there's a two pound sledgehammer in there. <laughs> <laughs> Bailout kit strapped to your parachute in your pockets, or none at all. I have the smack pack that uh, that come that um, that they sell, and I think I have a a, a solar blanket tucked in the back, you know, not in the parachute itself, but in the rig. Okay. And I might have a little um, little bit of survival kit or something packed in there too. Uh, I got my spot tracker as well, tied to my parachute to to the webbing. It, it does not interfere with the parachute opening. Gloves while flying, even in summer. Yes, absolutely. Sun, oxygen, uh, sun gloves, you know, that the fishing fishing guys use. Oxygen above 5,000, 10,000, always or never really needed for normal conditions where you fly. Uh, 10,000. Flight preparation, day before, morning of, and what are the things you most commonly forget over the years? Um, on the day before a flight is often just like trying to figure out where I put the batteries and charge up all the Nano and Audi and, um, you know, make sure I can get it, make sure there's a tow pilot and all that kind of normal stuff. Um, let's see. And then what, what do I usually forget? Is that what the second part was? Yep. What do you usually forget? Um, I usually forget my camelback full of water in my, in the refrigerator at home. Oh no. <laughs> and then, uh, occasionally, uh, uh, condom catheter. Yeah. If there's not any in my go box. Favorite soaring book. Soaring for diamonds. Coolest soaring video you have seen on YouTube lately. Oh man. I have to admit I'm not a YouTuber. I, got so I have you. to pass. <laughs> what would you value more, win a contest or set a record? Ooh, um, that's uh, I have trouble answering that. I've done them both now. 
Um, probably win a contest, I think. So, Landau, you have two options. Busy, towered Class Charlie Regional Airport or relatively short, but probably landable farmer's field far off the meeting track. Um, I am an ATP IFR current. I'll call approach and get clearance into the Class Charlie. That you know, Communicating with ATC is not in, does not intimidate me, I guess. So my glider does have a transponder right. too, nice. although no ADSB out, but I'd, I'd ask permission. So you have to land out and both the fields are the same surface and length, slight uphill with 15 knot tailwind or a slight downhill with 15 knot headwind. <laughs> just, I feel like I'm being tested. So. <laughs> Glider Flying Handbook says to land uphill. So, gotcha. And that's probably the answer your pilot examiner is looking for on the test, too. So. Emergency, you have two options. Jump out with a parachute or land in a lake. Oh, land in the lake. Yeah. That's been demonstrated recently, right? Yeah. Yeah, I believe. I believe so. I think there's, I know of two this year, one in the U.S. and one in Europe that have landed yeah. in the water. What's your favorite soaring bird to follow and lift? Well, bald eagles. Yeah, yeah. And, nice. Yeah. In fact, I think on the last day at Chilhowee, we, um, me and Mike and Jacob were in a thermal above a bald eagle. So. Oh, wow. Flaps or no flaps? I fly standard Cirrus, I guess. So no, I don't, I don't have flaps, but I don't have anything against flaps. I guess maybe that should be how I'll, I'll hedge my answer that way. <laughs> I gotcha. Ridge lift or thermal lift? Well, I obviously I'm more experienced with thermal lift, um, so that's my uh, my bread and butter. Bucket hat, cap, bandana, or stocking cap? Um, I fly with a bucket hat. Shoes, boots, or barefoot? No shoes, tennis shoes, lightweight. Yeah. Water bottle or Camelback? Camelback, yeah, two of them. Fifteen meter or eighteen meter? Um. I well, I fly a fifteen meter glider, but uh, I've never said no to an opportunity to fly a bigger glider. So. All right, metal gliders or wooden gliders? Wooden gliders. I've got a Cherokee two home built. That was my first glider. It's all wood. And oh, nice. I love the way That's a K six flies, and um, you can trust a tree, and wood is good, and all that stuff. So, all right, various sound in sync or quiet. Well, would, uh, you know, in sync, uh, I don't want to hear the sync. No. <laughs> <laughs> Spoilers on turn to final, open or close? Uh, yeah, uh, open. So. Paper checklist or mnemonic? On landing, I use a mnemonic, but uh, before takeoff, especially, I, I have a written checklist that I go through as I'm prepping and getting ready to grid and, and before launch to mostly to make sure that I've got everything in the glider I need to, especially for a contest flight. Not a good deal. Last time you looked at the compass. Well, I actually have a compass on uh, the panel of my glider. And um, oh, nice. for airplanes, I fly my Cessna 120 around and the compass is the only navigation equipment in the airplane. So, yeah, so I actually do look at a compass and follow it. P2, pee bag, diaper, or hold it as long as you can and take a pee right when you jump out of the uh, <laughs> I have a, <laughs> a tube overboard. 
tie down for the night or stuff it into the trailer every time, no matter what? Um, I'm a little 50-50 on that. Depends. If the weather's nice, I'm fine tying down, but I got a pretty good Comet trailer, and we can have it in the box in 15 minutes if we need to, so it's not a big deal to rig. Nice. I got a few more questions. Gatorade or water in summer flights? I take water. I, in flight, I take water. Favorite single instrument in the cockpit? <laughs> um, I guess the kind of have a lot. Well, I kind of, I would, I mean, most people obviously would say they're variometer pegged at 10, right? So yeah. I kind of have a love. I'm, I'm, be, I'm, I'm becoming more of one with my variometer right now. I got a new variometer. Nice. Tinted canopy or clear? Uh, I think I have mostly a clear canopy. I don't think there's much tint on it. I have brown tinted sunglasses. So. Name a glider pilot that you don't personally know, but really look up to them for whatever reason or whatever accomplishments. Hmm. That I don't personally know, but really look up to. That's a tough one. Yeah, you had a lot of great pilots right with you there in the contest. So <laughs> that is a tough one. Right, I know. Um, personally, no, which should define, like, when I think of people I really look up to, so talk a little bit about my background, what motivated me initially in soaring, or what fascinated me about soaring, I guess, was that it was a sport that I could compete in for my entire life and continue to improve in. The guys who compete decade after decade after decade and do it, and do it well, I think that's, that gives me a lot of inspiration as a semi-young person. I'm 35 now, but that really inspired me when I was in my early 20s learning the glider, learning to glide. That, you know, guys like uh, like Dick Johnson and Dick Butler and Ingo Renner and these guys who they compete and they fly for you know into their 70s and 80s um, that that was even possible. You know, so now I briefly met Dick Johnson. I didn't know him very well. I've flown with Ingo Renner and I I know. Dick Butler as well. I mean, those just as those examples, but that's the kind of thing that really inspires me. Um, really, Ingo especially. I don't. He's Australian. You know, he he won like five or six world championships, I think, in the late seventies and eighties. And then he's in his early eighties now, and he instructs like two hundred hours a year in his club in Australia. And I think that's really something that's admirable. That you know, he's a damn good competition pilot, and he puts as much effort as he can into instructing new glider pilots. Wow. That is awesome. So your favorite sports team that has nothing to do with gliders, but. <laughs> um, I'm a long suffering <laughs> Minnesota twins baseball fan. Nice. And so, and then uh, my wife and I went to Iowa state university. So we follow Iowa state. Basketball, which has been terrible lately, and football, which has been a lot better lately. Your favorite adult beverage? Um, favorite adult beverage? Hot summertime evening, just a you know cheap light beer is kind of hard to beat. So. Nice. All right, I got one more for you, Tony. Okay. What's What's more cool, a Perlin glider on Mars or a little helicopter drone? Oh, well, Perlin glider, of course. <laughs> Absolutely. Got to start somewhere, though. The helicopter is definitely cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tony, thank you very much. It's been great talking with you, and congrats again on your win down in Tennessee. That's very cool. It's nice to hear your story. Thanks for having me. It was great to be back. Yeah, absolutely.
we will keep in touch with you. So have fun out there, right? Fly safe. I will. Talk to you later. Hi, this is Sergio from the Soaring Master channel, bringing you tips and advice about soaring techniques and some tales from soaring history. Today we are going to talk about dolphin flying technique. The dolphin flying technique has this name because the flight path resembles dolphins porpoising above the water and diving again. This technique was developed in the 60s with the advent of fiberglass and water ballast, which increased sailplanes' cruising speeds and all-up mass. The energy that could be obtained from interthermal updrafts by climbing while cruising became evident because one could reach the next thermal higher than McCready theory originally predicted. Uh, remember that McCready theory does not take into account updrafts or downdrafts in between thermals. So by applying this technique, pilots would spend less time climbing and thus achieving a faster cross-country speed. The dolphin flying technique consists on a series of pushovers and pull-ups trying to maximize the exposure to rising air by accelerating on the downdraft zone that precedes the rising air region and then trade this kinetic energy for height by pulling jigs proportional to the updraft's intensity. And once the pilot passes the core, he commands a pushover to gain speed and thus reduce the exposure to the following downdraft. If correctly performed, the pilot should be higher or at least at the same height when he's starting the dolphin cycle, therefore extracting energy from the updraft without stopping. It sounds great, but it's easier said than done. Uh, most pilots perform dolphin flying pushing a lot more G's than they should, constantly loading and unloading their wings, and this roller coaster can be cool, but any beneficial result can be spoiled by this overcommanding. Uh, as a rule of thumb, never pull more than 2 G's and never go lower than 0.5 G's. Uh, overcommand increases drag because since we don't have an engine, uh, every time we deflect a control surface, we generate trim drag, and by unnecessarily changing speeds, we also increase drag due to lift during the pull-ups. Uh, the speeds involved in dolphin flying are an issue too. Most thermals have an updraft diameter of about 200 meters or 600 feet. This distance is easily covered in 4 seconds at 100 knots or 180 kilometers per hour. If the pilot misses the right point by one or two seconds to pull up or to push over, he risks committing the greatest sin of dolphin flying, which is pulling up at weakening lift and pushing on downdraft. The speed-to-fly command of most varios will help to some extent, but they also have a lag of about 0.5 seconds, and you as a human being, you also have your motor lag as well. So, uh, another factor that influences in the difficulty of correctly applying the technique is that there is no 
instrument capable of reading thermal strength ahead and giving you a pull-up, push-over, load factor Q. So you're basically doing it blindly or always behind of what you feel. And also many sailplanes are not equipped with a G-meter. Pilots must train and develop their own technique to know exactly when to command the pull-up and when to push over. Some pilots become absolute masters in this technique. Others become so used to G-loading and unloading that they would beat some red arrows, thunderbirds or fresh tricolory pilots out there. But this kind of overcommanding will lead to no overall increase in cross-country speed. Or even worse, if wrongly performed, it can also slow you down. So always try to be gentle with the pull-up and push-over commands and proportional to thermal strength when dolphin flying. So that's it, guys. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at SurreyMaster for more tips and advice. Thank you, Sergio. Looking forward to hearing more of your segments here on Soaring the Sky. A longtime sponsor of the show, we are so honored to have the support of the Southern California Soaring Academy. They're doing meaningful and almost monthly now nonprofit outreach work with local area veterans and also young people in STEM programs at their top-notch glider port facility located just outside of Los Angeles there in the high desert of Southern California. They also have a fantastic flight school there and continuing to turn out great glider pilots every month. If you'd like to donate to their nonprofit initiatives or learn more about their flight school, please pop over to their website at soaringacademy.org or check them out on Instagram. That's at Soaring Academy. Now let's see what Flying Simon has for us on another new segment here on the podcast, and this one we like to call Simon Says. Today, I'd like to make a case for something that is dreaded by so many, the outlanding. So many people in the gliding community say that it's something you should avoid at all cost, be it with taking less risk or with an engine. And it's true, an outlanding can cause some damage and it's always quite a hassle to get back to your home field. I had my fair share of these as well. But there's also some advantages and today, I'd like to make a case why you should also outland more. First of all, it can be a lot of fun to outland. I've had some great memories just after outlanding somewhere in a field. I've often been stranded somewhere in the middle of nowhere in the Netherlands. And it's always a lot of fun to talk with a farmer you've never seen before and to see a piece of your country that you've never been. One of my greatest memories was when I was flying a competition and we had to go into Germany. And that's where I made my outlanding, unfortunately. But I made a crucial mistake because my final was overhead a German village. And so as soon as I landed, the whole village came towards me to see what had happened. So not only was I talking to police and other emergency services, I also was talking to the local journalist doing an interview in German that I don't speak at all and about 10 children wanting to sit in my plane. And one and a half hours later, when my crewmate arrived, he couldn't find me because I was drinking a beer with one of the German guys. So that's one part of it. An outlanding is always an adventure and gives you some good stories if you ever have to record a column in a podcast. But it also keeps you sharp. These landings are often in a short field under high stress, and so you really have to practice your skills before outlanding. 
And then the most important part, and that is learning. Because having made an outlining means that you have passed the limit. And so now you know where the limit of the day is. A famous pilot once said that you have to outland at least half of the times that you're flying, because then you're really finding the balance between pushing and flying conservatively. Now, of course, you can do this with an engine as well. The engine means that you can fly on days that other people would not fly, that do not want to outland. But there's another advantage to outlanding, and that is seeing clouds in the air while you are standing on the ground. It is one of the most painful feelings I've ever had in gliding, definitely in competitions when you see other competitors flying overhead. But it's also one of the key learning moments because that's exactly the pain that you remember in the next flight. So the next time you outland, don't see it as a failure, see it as an adventure and realize that although you might've made a mistake, you can learn from it and come back a bit stronger. Thank you for joining us for another soaring journey and adventure here on Soaring the Sky. I know a lot of you have had some great flights and some of you have emailed us and told us about them. We love to hear from you and where you're listening, but you know what we really would like you to do is visit our website and use the recording tool and leave us a story about one of those flights. And if not you, tell your fellow club members next time you're in the hangar and you're having a couple beers after a great day of soaring, and they're sitting there and they start telling you about their awesome experience they just had in the air. Say, hey, you need to share that with Soaring the Sky and the Soaring community. Tell them how easy it is. Just click on SoaringTheSky.com, hit the Contact Us tab, you'll see the microphone just one click away. It really is that easy. Thanks again for hanging out with us. Talk to you in a couple weeks or sooner if you're catching up on all those previous episodes. So stay healthy, stay safe, and happy soaring. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at soaringthesky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton, co-producer Mitch Thompson. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.